This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Imagine that the Beatles, the most popular rock and roll band the world has ever seen, stayed together instead of breaking up in 1970. What new adventures would Paul, John, George, and Ringo have experienced? Would they have continued to play for years, like the Rolling Stones? Bryce Zabel is the author of Once There Was a Way, What If the Beatles Stayed Together? And he joins me in mere moments uh, and for the first hour. Whoops, there we are. Now, second hour, just holding up the book for those of you uh, live streaming on YouTube. There's the book cover, Once There Was a Way. I'm about three-quarters of the way through it and just uh, enjoying it immensely. Second hour. Uh, Remember those Paracas skulls in Peru? These elongated humanoid skulls with red hair? Well, L.A. Marzulli will be here with details of some recent DNA testing performed on those skulls. Wow, that's a pretty solid show. Albert Vinzel, my story producer. Good job, my friend. This is a killer lineup. Um, Let me quickly introduce the boys in the band. On the Flying V Gibson guitar, my technical producer and fine rockabilly friend, Ian Robertson, is here. On the Rickenbacker bass guitar, and occasionally the theremin, story producer, the mysterious, idiosyncratic Albert Vinzel. Uh, And finally, on the Hammond B3, some have called him the fifth Beatle. Actually, nobody has called him the fifth Beatle. I thought, given tonight's topic, it was kind of... Anyway, uh, he runs our live YouTube stream and produces my weekly radio feature, Strange Planet. Ryan White uh, is here. And just a reminder, we do live stream on YouTube most weeks, so if you haven't done so already, please check out the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, uh, and be sure to hit that red sub button. And my new podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Conspiracy Unlimited. Well, this first hour is a little bit of a departure uh, because it deals with a work of fiction. But it is, it's a fascinating genre, alternate history. I like to call it What If. 
the what-if genre. And if you believe in the idea of the, the multiverse theory, parallel universes and so forth, then you, I guess you have to hold out the possibility that the, the narrative laid out in Once There Was a Way, what if the Beatles stayed together, is possible. Somewhere in an alternate universe, John Lennon is still alive, George Harrison is still alive, they're all performing. Not on this plane of existence, but somewhere. And as a, a huge Beatles, Beatles fan, like many of you, who was uh, devastated by John Lennon's murder and then later George Harrison's death, this book provides kind of a strange sense of comfort, resolution, closure. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm about three-quarters of the way through it and just enjoying it immensely. Bryce Zabel is a former CNN correspondent, now a Hollywood writer-producer who's created five primetime TV series, written multiple produced feature films and TV miniseries. He was the first writer since Rod Serling, elected to serve as the CEO of the Television Academy that gives out the Emmys. Bryce is a winner himself of the Writers Guild Award for his screenwriting work, as well as multiple awards for investigative reporting for PBS. And together with his wife Jackie, he runs Stellar Productions, the company's latest film, The Last Battle, will be filmed by Studio Canal this year in Europe. Bryce Zabel, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm trying to get my blood pressure down after that Super Bowl game. Ah, so you were the one that watched. <laughs> yes. It Turned was out to be you. a good one. I, I, I know you're in Toronto, and uh, I don't know. I don't, do uh, Canadians watch the Super Bowl? Yes, they do. Yes, yeah, they do. Well, Probably more than, than watch the Grey Cup, actually, which is our version of it. Well, I tell you, uh, I'm doing great. It's, uh, it's great to be on your show. It's, it's, uh, you, got, you have a great show, um, and I've got many friends who love it and listen to it all the time. So thank you for having me on. I well, appreciate I appreciate it. it. And I mean it when I say that it's... I don't know if you're getting this reaction from people, but it, for those of us who felt cheated... And I, I mentioned this the other night. I was hosting Coast. Uh, how it, it was like getting punched in the stomach when John Lennon was murdered. Not only, you know, we, we, we tend to gloss over the fact that it was, a, you know, a, a wife lost a husband and, a, and, a, and a son, oh. two sons lost a father. But then for the fans, which is kind of selfish, we felt cheated because that meant the Beatles would never get back together. So this book, it provides kind of in a strange, kind of a multiverse, uh, parallel universe way, kind of a closure for us. Are you getting I, that I, reaction? I, I, I think you're touching on something that, that I've heard from a number of people uh, who, who, even for a few hours, they feel like they've had a chance to experience what it might be like. And, I, and, it, and for the, the people who feel that way, then I'm really gratified because that was the highest compliment anybody could, could pay to the book. I tried to be realistic. I tried to not make it a time travel book. It's not no. based on some crazy circumstance. There's nobody going back in time to do anything. It's just a telling of what might have been. And um, and I think that people, uh, I think you're right, people do want to uh, think about what, what could have been, because we know it can never be now, at least not in our universe. And I think it's very interesting also what you just said. I'm sure uh, Stephen Hawking and uh, Michio Kaku could actually think to themselves, well, this could happen in, in at least one of those universes out there, in, in these infinite universes. So I like to think that, uh, that it's just a fun way to look at things. Uh, it, because I, I'll tell you something. I personally think that we all know who John, Paul, George, and Ringo are as characters. We've come to get their personalities because we've we've seen interviews with them, we've seen movies, we've seen you know all the stuff that has gone on about them. We've internalized that. We they have four very distinct personalities. So what I tried to do is take those four personalities 
and basically give them a set of new adventures. And, and, uh, yeah. and, and, and I think that uh, those new adventures make people think, well, that would have been nice. And I, I think that that's enough. I think that's, that's kind of a pleasant feeling. And at the same time, though, I'm a dramatist, so I tried not to make it silly, and I tried not to make it crazy. I tried to make it feel as realistic as I possibly could, so I tried to draw on some of those skills that I've had as a journalist over the years and, and put those to work. Well, what, what you've also done masterfully is blended uh, fact with fiction to the point where I had to ask myself, wait a minute, uh, you know, is it plausible that, that the, the Beatles may have uh, uh, appeared in, in, a, in Stanley Kubrick's production of Lord of the Rings? I mean, was that in the works? And we can talk about that later. But, uh, I mean, how were, you, how were you able to research this, this book and sort of decide where, where fact would, uh, would sort of blend into fiction? I mean, I can't tell because I, I don't know all the ins and outs of the Beatles and their management teams and so forth. So well, I'll I tell you tell. one thing. I did put kind of a cheat sheet at the end of the book, uh, the sources of speculation, where I talk about things like the, the Lord of the Rings and the Woodstock appearance, those kind of things, as to whether they could have happened or not and what was really going on. So, yeah, uh, I get that reaction a whole lot from readers who, who say, I had to stop and I kept reading to find out what was real and what wasn't. That's one way to read the book. The other is just to kind of surrender to the, to the flow of it. Uh, but uh, how, do, how do you do it? Well, that's interesting, and this may appeal to some of your uh, listeners. I, I sort of started doing this when I did a television series for NBC in the 90s called Dark Skies, which was mm-hmm. uh, about the UFO conspiracy, and, I, and my partner Brent Friedman and I tried to blend together the historical events of the 1960s that we know happened only see them through the prism of UFO events. So we sort of gained some of those skills doing that. And then a few years ago, for the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, I wrote another one of these what I call breakpoint books, uh, which are these what-if books, and that one was called Surrounded by Enemies, What If Kennedy Survived Dallas? And uh, that's what basically got a book publisher to say, can you do another one? What would it be? And I said, well, the Beatles sound, sounds good. But one of the things that you do uh, is you read a lot. So, you know, for the Kennedy assassination, I already knew a lot about it, but I read some 50 books on it. Same thing with the Beatles. I, I can't say I read 50 books, but I read within 50 books about them, uh, watched a lot of stuff. And uh, then you, you sort of get to the place where you say, okay, I get what was going on with the Beatles at, at any particular time. But then you go back and you kind of make a timeline, if you will, of what of the time period. So for the Beatles book, uh, the 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 really important years for this particular book, once there was a way, what if the Beatles stayed together, is what I call the years of maximum danger to the group, which would have been 1968 through 1975. I mean, right. you know, uh, even in our timeline, obviously, and and so. I try to find the events of that period and blend them together. And if you think about it, what was going on? Well, the Vietnam War was winding down. Watergate was getting ready to happen. Nixon was in office. We did Woodstock. We had, you know, we just had a lot of things going on. And I just tried to look at, at the Beatles through that prism. And another thing that, uh, that I tried to do is to say, uh, I'm going to bend and twist history, but not in ways that, that are outrageous. So, for example, there's something that happens to John Lennon uh, later in the book, that takes its inspiration from the Patty Hearst kidnapping of right. 1974. So right. it's not like uh, I just made something up that could never, ever happen in this universe or any other universe, but something that had happened, but to another person. So I kind of tried to do it that way, to keep it real, and um, and 
you know, constantly cross-referenced things, went back, uh, did more research. And uh, I, I think the years I spent as a journalist really paid off because it's, uh, it's a skill to kind of root through history and pull out stuff quickly, and, and that's what you have to do to write one of these books. Right. So, I mean, yeah, that's kind of how I went at it. Someone else has mentioned this. I mean, it reads like a Rolling Stone history of the Beatles and right. how they stayed together. And, and as, you, as you mentioned, there's nothing in here uh, that you're sort of speculating or, or you know fantasizing could have happened that is not plausible. I mean, had the Beatles stayed together, they could have played Woodstock. But when I, one of those danger periods, obviously, and some say this is what really precipitated the breakup of the Beatles, was when Apple Records was formed, and then they were arguing right. who was going to represent them. And Paul wanted his in-laws, the Eastman, uh, uh, was it John Eastman? Right. And Lee Eastman. And, and, and Yes, exactly. John Eastman and his son. Right. And John wanted um, uh, Alan Klein, the Rolling Stones manager, uh, to come in and represent him. Uh, and now, did that, is that that part is true, right? Well, uh, it is true. Uh, I just let them resolve it differently. What happened yeah. in real life is, of course, uh, John hired Alan Klein and said to the others, uh, "You know, deal with it." Right. And uh, Paul said, "Well, I'd rather have my father, my soon-to-be father-in-law, uh, do do this." And then Ringo and George said, "Well, I guess we're going to go with John because we're not so sure that Paul should have his father-in-law to be uh, running the Beatles." So they kind of reached an impasse, and that literally, uh, although there were many, many causes, but that was literally the most fractious of yeah. all the causes, uh, I guess next to Yoko. Um, and, and so as a consequence, um, I looked at that as more of a problem. I'm, you know, we all have to get along occasionally. We have to compromise occasionally. Business deals get struck all the time. I asked myself, were there any pivot points where the Beatles could have seen things in a different way? And, uh, and, and they didn't have to be big changes. They had to be small things that added up to consequential uh, actions. And, um, and by the way, I just want to say, you, you, you mentioned it. Uh, this, this illustrates for your listeners what, how I try to approach the book. It is true that the Beatles launched Apple Records in 1968. And a, a very true thing that happened is that John and Paul went to New York together. So they were already kind of on the skids as friends, but they went to New York to promote Apple, and they ended up on The Tonight Show. Oh, we went, Only Bryce, Johnny I'm Carson jump. wasn't there, right. and they ended up with Joe Garagiola, who barely could tell John from Paul. Bryce, i got to jump in here. Bankhead, who was drunk, who... <laughs> Bryce, i got to jump in. If uh, We're going to take a time out. Apologies. Oh, sure. Uh, we're going to come back, and I want to talk to you about, uh, about the, uh, that Tonight Show appearance. And uh, we are talking with Bryce Zabel. Once there was a way, what if the Beatles stayed together? Back with more in a moment, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with uh, Bryce Zabel, Once There Was a Way, a what-if uh, book, what if the Beatles stayed together. And uh, everything in here is, is, is plausible. I mean, had, uh, had they not uh, broken up in uh, 1969, 1970, 
uh, and sort of survived that rough period, there's perhaps no reason why they couldn't have continued to become a major cultural force well into the 70s and beyond. Uh, now, you were talking about this uh, trip to New York. They were there to, to publicize right. Apple Records. Well, let and, me just take yeah. one uh, kind of step back to go to the 35,000-foot thing yes. on, uh, on uh, the Breakpoint book series. In the Kennedy book, for example, the Breakpoint, that is that moment where history diverges, is fairly clean-cut. I mean, he doesn't get killed, so history is often another tangent at that point. Right. With the Beatles, I chose to be a little more subtle and not to make it any one thing, but a, one thing that began to snowball into some other things. So that goes back to The Tonight Show, which seems like a pretty innocuous uh, breakpoint, if you will. Yes. But what happened in real life, as we said before the break, is that John and Paul ended up doing The Tonight Show with Joe Garagiola and Tallulah Bankhead, and it wasn't a great moment. I mean, they didn't have a good time, and when they got off the show, they went back to their hotel room, and then they promptly left New York. So in the book, um, I literally started with Lennon saying he's not going to go on the show if Johnny Carson isn't the host. And they tell him that there's going to be a guest host. And Carson, of course, doesn't take this very well, but Carson knows that a, a good guest is hard to find. So he literally was in New Jersey at the time doing some comedy stand-up show, uh, which, you know, if you had a choice between doing comedy stand-up in New Jersey or hanging out with the Beatles... I think you'd probably go back if, you, if, if push came to shove. So Carson comes back and does the show on one condition, and the condition is that Paul and John have to play a song and they have to do the whole show. And so they do. And what ends up happening, without spoiling everything, right. is that they have a really great time together. And, yes. uh, and they learn one little, one little thing about how to overcome difficulties in a friendship. From Ed McMahon, uh, of all people. <laughs> from Ed McMahon, of all people. But... Again, as you point out, it's not that it's not outrageous. It could no. have happened because all that was in play. I didn't make up that they were on the Tonight Show. They were. Yes. So uh, it's and from that little moment, you have a, a, a the arrow of history goes a little bit different, and it picks up some steam, and uh, they began to see just enough things in a slightly different way that they can. They can sort of hang on by their fingernails long enough to make it work. Right. Just, yeah, the message, I guess the takeaway, Ed, was, you know, you don't always have to be friends. Just show up and be there just, for each other. Just show up. And, in fact, one of the things uh, that, that your um, listeners might enjoy is we literally uh, follow that thread of showing up for each other um, as, as, a, as a way to maintain a friendship. And they end up making a, writing a song about it called Show Up. And we recorded a version of Show Up and uh, shot a music video of the Beatles recording Show Up in 1971 in George Harrison's garage at Friar Park right. where he lived, right. complete with a gnome and everything like he did and like he had on All Things Must Pass on the cover. That's amazing. And that's at morebeatles.com, so oh. if people want to see that, they can go there. Oh, I gotta, I'm going to check that out. Well, thank you for that. It's kind of fun. That. I mean, you know, it, nobody can recreate, you know, I, I can't prove to you they're, they're the Beatles, but I think you get the sense of it and, and the kind of the fun of it. And I've tried to create a lot of those kind of fun Easter egg moments. Uh, uh, we have a website called whatifbeatles.com, for example. And instead of it just being a website to promote the book, I've tried to thread in some of those ancillary pieces of material that kind of amplify what's in the book already to make it kind of fun to go back and forth and that kind of thing. Well, I don't want to get too uh, too far into the weeds, as they say, but I, w I do want to go back to one of the characters in uh, sure. that sort of really saves Apple Records and, and thus resolves... 
the sort of the management issues and sort of allows the Beatles to continue into the 70s. And that is, and I don't know if this is a real person or not, but he was the guy that fixed Britain's railroads, Lord Beecher. Yeah. He comes in and and basically drives Ed McMahon's message home, which is, is you know, uh, just show up, produce right. an album well, a what, year. And it, it's, well, again, a, a little bit of research goes a long way when you're writing these books. And one of the things that I, I researched as much as I could was, this whole management thing. Yes, we know from his history that it came down to Klein versus uh, the Eastmans, but there were other people that they considered, lots of other people, and one of them was Lord Beeching. And Lord Beeching was the guy who, uh, like about um, six years earlier, had been put in charge of the campaign to keep Britain's railroads running on time. And let's face it, the Beatles uh, at, at that time in the 68, 69, 70 period uh, if Apple was to succeed as a business, needed to stop uh, throwing its money away. They were really not well managed, and they needed somebody to come in and be the tough love guy. Um, and it, it couldn't be Klein uh, by himself because he wasn't respected by Paul, and it couldn't be Eastman because he wasn't respected by John and, to a lesser extent, George and Ringo. So I kind of throw Beeching in there as the, the tiebreaker, and... Uh, and I think it works very well. It, and it, and it, I'm not saying that it, it uh, was the thing that should have happened or whatever, but it's something that could easily have happened. And it's one of those things that gave everybody a little bit of face-saving. Uh, uh, it, face it, it, it just provided uh, sort of a layer of separation um, that they didn't all have to go through the people they didn't like, but they had someone else to talk to. And they began to see... Apple Records, not as something that was a big waste of time and wasn't important because the Beatles were through anyway, but they began to see Apple Records as something that had some value and and was worth trying to save. And they began to see Apple Records as something that wasn't just the Beatles, but could not survive without the Beatles. And I think that was one of the keys that kind of unlocked things for them. And Apple Records also became kind of a, a, a jewel, uh, an, yes. a, a source of pride for, for well, Great Britain. Well, let's face it, it was supposed to be, and it might very well have been, because they were signing big acts. They were the guys that started James Taylor, for example. Right. Um, Apple was trying to make it as a, as a media giant as an, uh, certainly as a record company and the only thing that killed it is that the number one asset that apple records had although it had some assets but the number one asset it had of course was the beatles and if the beatles announced their breakup as they did in our timeline well that kind of put uh, a lot of stress on making apple sound like a, a really happening company um, and so i tried to find a few things that could get the Beatles through the very tough period that they were in from a friendship point of view. Things where they, as John, you know, John feel in the book feels coerced, but he goes along because he's told, because if he wants to keep Apple alive, he's got to play the game. Also, as you pointed out, it turned out that um, there was a real honest attempt to make uh, Lord of the Rings with the Beatles. That was my the, next question. Uh, yeah. In the late 60s, early 70s. So I embraced that. And let's face it, if you're spending all the money to have Stanley Kubrick direct the Beatles and the Lord of the Rings, the last thing you want as part of your promotional campaign is the Beatles breaking up. So it provided cover to keep them together, at least in the public mind, for a, a little while longer. And, and how... Uh 
Well, talk to me a little bit about the um, the talk back then that the Beatles might actually appear in in a production of Lord of the Rings, okay. uh, directed I mean, by Stanley Kubrick. One that, uh, I, this is the one, by the way, Richard, that most people, when I, when I mention it, they're like, get out of here, that couldn't have happened. But in reality, uh, the Beatles had signed uh, their, you know, their films were produced by UA, United Artists. Mm-hmm. And in reality, United Artists was uh, getting the rights to the Lord of the Rings. And so uh, the Beatles still owed United Artists another movie. And uh, they also were considering Stanley Kubrick to direct such a movie. It would have been a movie that he would have done after um, 2001 in place of Clockwork Orange, for example, or before Clockwork right. Orange. So I took all of that and said, well, what if, it, what if this arrow of history broke in the way that would allow that to have happened. And as it turns out, uh, this was confirmed in 2002 when the director of our Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson, uh, talked to Paul McCartney, and McCartney said, oh yeah, we were trying to make that movie. It was John's idea originally. Uh, he was most taken by it. And I think what your listeners may find the most amusing part of it is, if you think about it, the parts kind of break down a little bit uh, in a way that you you could understand. Paul would have been Frodo. Ringo would have been his right-hand man, Samwise Gamgee. I hope I pronounced that right. Yes, yes. And who do you think would have been Gandalf? It would have had to have been George, our spiritual beetle, right? Right. And that makes John Gollum. And (laughs) and that's what John wanted to do. He wanted to play Gollum. So so I just kind of ran with it. I just said, okay, that happens in this book. What would it have meant to the Beatles? Um, it wouldn't have been all uh, champagne and roses, though, I can tell you that. Um, uh, Kubrick was a difficult guy to work with, as we all know. John wasn't the easiest guy to work with himself. And they probably would have had some conflicts uh, trying to make a movie together. Uh, but sometimes a great movie can come out of conflicts. So that's kind of the direction I went with the whole thing. Uh, the um, you've, you've changed some of the names of the albums. Uh, yes. In '68, the White Album became... A Doll's House, right? Uh, and then uh, uh, Let It Be became uh, Get Back, and Abbey Road became Savile Row. Abbey Road, no, Abbey Sa- Road became uh, Everest. 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 Sorry, right? Yeah, right. Because okay. uh, and and you know, again, there's two audiences out there, I guess, for a book like this. Some of them don't know uh, much of the Beatles' history, so they're going to read this and go, "He changed the album, you know, titles for no good reason." But Beatles fans will recognize. That I, what I did is I embraced the working titles of the albums that they actually were going to do and, and just kind of ran with that, just because I thought it would be fun and it would provide a distinctive feeling that this arrow, this break point, this arrow of history was not waiting to break in 1970 when, it, when in our world they'd already broken up, but I let it start a little earlier. So again, the working title of the White Album was A Doll's House, so I stuck with that. Um, the working title of uh, of Let It Be was Get Back. The working title of uh, Abbey Road was Everest. And so you've got these three albums um, already uh, in the Beatles catalog that we know that are a little bit different. Just not a lot, just a little bit different. And then the pace of change picks up after those albums, of course, because in our world, the Beatles all went on and produced a really fabulous amount of solo work in the 1970s. The early 1970s were just prolific. There was a lot of pent-up creativity among the Beatles. So I tried to reflect some of that energy and passion and musical uh, respect that they would have had to uh, keep for each other to get 
some new albums out there, and so there's a, a, a different chronology of albums. Most of it, but not all of it, most of it is composed of music that you might have heard uh, in, of course, the solo album. So in other words, in Once There Was a Way, What If the Beatles Stayed Together, uh, certain songs like Ringo's Photograph, John's Imagine, Paul's Band on the Run, George's All Things Must Pass, things like that, instead of being solo works, become works that are part of this Beatles catalog that emerges in the 1970s. But my feeling is, if you're if to to only merge solo albums together, then I'm just doing a glorified mixtape, which people have done right exactly uh, yes. on on the internet. Yes, and. And I don't want people just to argue about my book as if it's a mixtape. I want them to read it and enjoy it and, and talk about it. And so, But I do think that it was sort of incumbent upon me not to just do a, a singular mixtape of solo work. So my feeling was, if the Beatles had actually stayed together in those, in those early years of the 70s, they would, you know, life would have been different for them. And as a consequence of it being a little different, certain songs that we didn't have in our timeline would have emerged. And part of the fun and discovery that I think fans have had with the book is seeing how some of these other songs were created, such as Show Up, the song that is at morebeatles.com. That came about because of something that didn't exist in our timeline but does exist in the alternate history timeline of this book. And there's there's a number of others, not... Not a lot, but maybe maybe ten total uh, over the the run of the the book, and I think it gives people a sense of fun and and I, I really enjoyed creating them, to be honest with you. Oh, and, and as I say, you've you've just blended fact with fiction so well that it all just seems uh, so plausible. Uh, Again, not knowing all of the Beatle lore, um, there's um, a chapter in here in which Hunter S. Thompson, uh, fresh off his Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas uh, tour, uh, drops by the Beatles while they're recording uh, at the record plant in Los Angeles and takes them to a political debate. Uh, Now, I mean, obviously that's in 72, so the Beatles weren't together. But what was the inspiration there? Did Hunter Thompson ever meet the Beatles? You know, that one is, I think, a fever dream in my own um, <laughs> my own mind, but I'll tell you the, the inspiration for it is Hunter Thompson, for real, in 1972 was trying to follow up his brilliant uh, fear and loathing in Las Vegas, and he was a, a you know a columnist for Rolling Stone magazine, and he wrote in 1972 fear and loathing on the campaign trail. So I just thought, how much fun would it be to cross paths with the Beatles and Hunter Thompson? I do this with a number of historical characters in the book, Hunter Thompson being one of the more memorable ones. And the reason I wanted to do Hunter Thompson is when I was in journalism school back in the day, uh, Hunter Thompson was, besides Woodward and Bernstein, which were the establishment characters that we were passionate about, Hunter Thompson was the alternate uh, journalist that we were passionate about, and I thought it would give me a chance to write about the Beatles in the style of Hunter Thompson. So I wrote a couple of extended sections in that chapter where it's Hunter Thompson telling the story of his one night with the Beatles uh, in 1972. And what ends up happening, of course, is that uh, he, he sees them on the the day of the California primary, which was a a very important moment in, in political history in our timeline because the entire nomination for the Democrats came down to that day. And, uh, of course, Thompson is doing his usual, um, uh, well, you know, we, we know what Thompson would be doing. Oh, yes. And he drags the Beatles into some of this, and they have adventures. And it's kind of fun, and, um, 
and it, it it was so much fun. I just thought, well, that's part of the joy of writing an alternate history. If you're going to create new adventures for the Beatles, I thought, let's really create some new adventures for the Beatles. Since it's it's not real, I'm not arguing it was real, I'm just saying, wouldn't it have been fun? So I thought, let's drag some of the real characters of history into this, like Hunter Thompson, Richard Nixon, John Dean even. What about... Uh, uh, Linda Ronstadt has a role oh, in this. Yes, i got to talk so to you about that. There's all kinds of things in the book that are kind of food for thought on that on that kind of area. All right, we'll take another time out. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Bryce Zabel. Once there was a way. What if the Beatles stayed together? You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, we are here with Bryce Zabel. Once There Was a Way. This is a, a breakpoint novel, the second in a series of sort of what-if uh, novels. What if the Beatles stayed together? Uh, any, what, what's the third one going to be? Do you know? You know, I get asked that a lot now, and if I knew, I would tell you instantly. I, I think I set a kind of a high bar for myself that I haven't figured out how to overcome, because... JFK is about, I, I realize that a lot of your uh, listeners are in Canada, of course, but they're all over the United States as well. And, you know, JFK is about one of the most iconic things, and then the Beatles are obviously iconic. So I've hit, you know, it's a pretty high bar. And the other thing I want to do with these books is I don't, I, I, the what if I've seen before is what if the Nazis won World War II? What if the South won the Civil War in the United States? And I don't want to do those. Right. I mean, those Robert Harris done, actually did that. I want to do things that people just haven't thought of doing. And I think yeah. the Beatles, uh, while people have speculated about it, um, I don't think there's been too many books that attempt to realistically dig into it. So I'm looking around in, um, in my mind and in, in, uh, in history to find something that will do justice to the first two. You if mentioned you have a great idea, Richard. Let me know. Okay. You mentioned, the, you know, what if the Nazis had won the war? I think uh, Robert Harris, I think, did, did something like well, that. Well, he about... did Fatherland, and of yes, course, that's it. on Amazon right now, you have uh, the, the very wonderful um, Man in the High Castle. Right, right. So it's, it's those a, it's two a... get done, but, yeah. but again, uh, it's harder to put a spin on this fresh and original, and I, I think uh, what, what the readers so far seem to like about Once There Was a Way is, is the idea that it... Um, it spins it in a realistic way, and we still have Paul performing right now. So it's not impossible to read this book and spend some time and think, wow, that would have been really nice mm. if, uh, if it could have worked out this way. And, uh, and I think that that is why uh, so many people seem to be uh, enjoying it. I had someone leave a, a note the other day uh, for me on uh, it was Facebook or Twitter, I don't remember where at this point, but just saying that they had just finished it and they didn't want it to end because they had enjoyed this vacation in their mind to this, you know, we live in a time where Trump is president and people are, you know, 
fighting with each other and there's a lot of disharmony in the world and they enjoyed taking a little while to just park their brain in a space where they could imagine all the great music the Beatles might have made had they not broken up. Exactly. Uh, this is a short segment, so um, just a few more minutes and then we'll break and then we'll, okay. have, then we'll go right clear to the top of the hour after that. Uh, but there's also the, um, of course, the, the FBI and Nixon's war sure. on, on John Lennon, which was real. We know about the FBI files on John Lennon and uh, he was he was rightfully paranoid. I mean, uh, even when he came up uh, here to Canada, I believe, and visited with uh, Rompin Ronnie Hawkins and stayed at his place in Peterborough, not too far from here, um, he believed that he was being uh, monitored and so forth. Well, and remember, Toronto is very important uh, for John. Yes. Uh, in our timeline, he went up to Toronto and, and played uh, a concert there, sort of his first break from the Beatles. And That's it right. gave him the confidence to come back and break up. Now, here's a... I, I've mentioned this before in the show, and this comes to me by way of um, uh, my, my good friend, media scientist Nelson Thal, who was a protege of Marshall McLuhan. And I don't know if you know about the meeting when... when uh, John Lennon was up here, uh, and he played at Varsity Stadium with the Plastigono Band. He actually right. met Marshall McLuhan. And the uh, the story goes that they had a lengthy conversation, and McLuhan, sort of, who was a conspiracy theorist, I mean, he talked about secret societies and how the arts are controlled by secret societies and so forth, and he told Lennon, in no uncertain terms, that you are a useful fool, uh, and that you are being used by, you know, the... Um, the establishment to, uh, you know, to brainwash the youth and, and make sex, drugs, and rock and roll all sort of you know, palatable and so forth and put Americans to sleep and distract from the Vietnam War and all of that. And Lenin was so enraged that he stormed out, then came back and, and actually calmed down and, and sort of conceded the points. Uh, and some wonder whether that may have sort of changed the trajectory of, of Lenin's... Well, he was pretty political, obviously, before he, he, that. He was... I, yeah. I, I think John was an active enough mind that he he can't reject something from someone that interesting out of hand, mm. and, and I think he, he thought a lot about it, and, and I think John always had the theory that to that his celebrity was something that could be parlayed into a sense of good, and, and uh, I, I think that's really what I've tried to do with the book only with an added little spin, which is John became a very controversial political character in our timeline and alienated uh, the Nixon administration, which sicked both the FBI and the INS on him. So my feeling was, if Lennon had stayed with the Beatles, uh, that very uh, he would have sucked the Beatles into that right. orbit of. Uh, of paranoia as well, and so I've I dealt with some time with that. I also wanted to just say, in regards to your show and and uh, and Lennon, he also saw a UFO in 1974, That's which is kind right. of interesting. Yeah, uh, and and was outspoken about it. So I I think John uh, would have been well. One of the things I like about the book is that John doesn't have to die as a consequence of this book, and and continues to be a social, political, and musical force uh, for many years to come. And wouldn't that have been glorious? I mean, we could have used John Lennon today commenting on our on, on what's going on in our world. Right. You, you, that's an interesting decision that in the, in the book Lennon lives and Harrison does pass away, as he did in two thousand and one, and is replaced by. Uh, well, I don't want to give too much well, away. Well, you know, here. in fact, let me just let me because that does. I think people do have questions about that. Let me, let me get just, you to hold on, uh, Bryce, because this is uh, the music's coming up here. We'll take a quick time out, come back, and we'll follow up on that point. Once there was a way, Bryce Zabel, check it out.
Back with more in a moment. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. And uh, we are with Bryce Zabel. Once there was a way, what if the Beatles stayed together? Uh, we were talking about, you know, your decision that uh, Lennon would, would survive right. uh, in this what-if uh, scenario. And, but George Harrison, of course, did succumb to cancer in, I, in I was just going to explain why I make some decisions one way versus the other. I, I, what I decided to do in this thing to keep it real is not to be in charge of whether somebody gets cancer or not. So uh, if Harrison died in the time period that he did, then he'd still died because of that, because I don't, I don't get to wave a magic wand right. over his health. Right. But with Lennon, uh, I, I believe that had the Beatles stayed together, there, it's very possible that they would have looked at security in a slightly different way. And I have something happen uh, early on that causes them to do just that. And John Lennon uh, didn't have to uh, be let out in front of the Dakota and sign autographs. There is a way into the Dakota that you can drive in underneath it. So I, I just kept Lennon alive uh, because he paid more attention to the security advice he was getting. Right, that's kind and, of the butterfly uh, effect. But the butterfly effect isn't necessarily going to prevent someone from getting cancer. No, that's kind of what I thought. Hey, by the way, I just wanted to say something, because uh, I know you have such a large audience in Canada. I feel like an honorary Canadian. I don't oh. know if your uh, listeners know it, but I created the show ENG that was a big show in Canada. Oh, wow. And and that I also shot three shows in Canada. I shot The Crow, Stairway to Heaven. I shot a, a show called K. O'Brien um, in Canada, in Toronto. And I shot a show called Mantis in Canada. So I, I've spent a, a whole long time in Canada. I'm from Oregon originally. We used to vacation in Canada. So I'm very, I, I literally go to meetings uh, here in Hollywood and I have people say, so you're Canadian, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. Well, you do have a strong connection to Toronto, as did Lennon. I think he said on yes. one occasion, had it not been New York, he may have chosen Toronto. Although I think I'd... he loved the city. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Every indication is that he did. Fascinating. Um, I want to just dial back a little bit because sure. there's another interesting moment. So many of them, but and this actually did happen. Of course, uh, Elvis Presley went to uh, the Nixon White House in the early '70s and was given an honorary DEA badge. And I think he, in his, he was a little delusioned and thought that he actually was working undercover with the DEA, but it was an honorary thing. Um, but the idea that that Elvis Presley sort of ratted out the Beatles and said, you know, and you know, the Beatles were th- thrilled to have met. Elvis in 1964, did Elvis actually rat them out to Nixon and said, these guys, you you should look at them, they're un-American? Well, he never in our timeline ratted out the entire Beatles, but um, he he wasn't a big fan. Uh, He he thought that they were, particularly of John, I think he thought John was a drug-taking, you know, politically raving kind of guy. And so I just kind of ran with that. Um, I, I... uh, the Beatles did enjoy meeting Elvis at the time, but as time went on, Elvis changed, and so did the Beatles. And so I, I, but again, keeping in line with the idea that I wanted to have some of these wonderful cameos, Elvis happens to be one of the best musical cameos you can put into a book like <laughs> oh, this. Yeah. I thought it might be fun. Yeah. And we do know, as you pointed out, that Elvis and Nixon 
uh, had met. And in, in this uh, alternate history that I've written, the Beatles are very much uh, pulled into the Nixon web of, uh, of entrapment. And uh, so it, there'd be no question that El- Elvis saw himself on Nixon's side of that one. Right, right. Hey, by the way, I just wanted, I'm getting some email here from people saying, where is it I'm supposed to look for some of the, can I just run these URLs very quickly for the yes, people please. who are listening yes, who want to know where, ahead. The, where they are? Absolutely, yes. Okay, so here's the deal. The main one is whatifbeatles.com. That's where you can find all these Easter eggs and all that, and that's where you can find uh, your local bookstore that might sell it to you. Then we have one called amazonbeatles.com, which you can go straight to Amazon. they got the best prices. And then the video is morebeatles.com. So what if Beatles, Amazon Beatles, more Beatles. And I, I, I can't wait after the show to check out the, um, I hope you the, like the music video of the, the Beatles performing at uh, Harrison's home, uh, <laughs> this, uh, this song, uh, Show Up. We uh, had such a fun time writing it. The author, of the, or the, the, uh, the composer of the music, Brian Bringelson, uh, w- was a, a, just a nut for detail in a good way. He made sure that we had the right equipment, the exact equipment that Paul used and John used, and the same drum set that Ringo used, that kind of thing. So it was really fun to put it together because you felt like for a moment you were sitting in George's garage, and that's kind of fun. Right, right. Uh, and did you actually shoot it at, at Friar Park? Did you say no? It? God no. knows. I, I, I wish I could. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We shot it here in uh, Southern California. But interestingly enough, I found uh, uh, someone, Casey Staples, is a person in the area who maintains a recording studio in his garage, and it's full of 70s vintage recording material. So we not only have the vintage um, instruments that the Beatles actually used, but we also have the recording uh, equipment and the microphones, the same exact microphones, all that stuff. So it's, you know, independent of the song and everything else, it's kind of fun just to take the time travel machine back and, and take a look at that. Let me dial it back again to, to 1969, and, and the, sure. the, the, you have the Beatles performing at Woodstock. How right. likely was that? Was there an invite? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it, the, the one of the great things uh, you ta- we started this show and we'll, I guess we'll circle back talking about the research. One of the things you learn about the research is that a lot of things happened in 1969 in that summer. John Lennon got in a car wreck. Uh, the, the Beatles uh, were putting together the Abbey Road album, and uh, and Woodstock was happening, and all in a very compressed period of time. So yes, they were invited. They didn't go because, frankly, Lennon had been in that wreck just shortly before that, and also they just didn't have plans, and they just were at that place in their professional career where it didn't make sense. Uh, they didn't want to put the energy into it, but. Uh, I'm able, because of the show-up thing, to let that arrow of history break in a way that allows McCartney to say to, to Lennon, uh, we got invited to uh, you know, play at this Woodstock thing. What do you think? And they end up doing it. Um, and it is a, it, it's a very dangerous place to play, not because people didn't like them, but because they liked them too much. And uh, the fans literally, it was almost like Beatlemania down the road. And it, it allowed them to be very scared that they might not make it out of Woodstock alive, if you will. And that's one of the reasons why Lennon survives through 1980 and beyond, because after that event, uh, all of them thought, we better pay a little more attention in the future to the security situation wherever we go. Uh, 
in in uh, you know on, on this plane of existence, um, McCartney, who I love, I mean, his, his, the the um, the volume of work is just out of this world, and he continues to be relevant well into his seventies. But truth be told, to me, to me at least, he sort of he he makes himself out to be sort of uh, the peacemaker and a little bit of the martyr, right? Um, what do you and, and I think that comes through a little bit in the book too. What do you What do you think? Uh, well, I'll tell you something. I will say this about the book. What I get over and over is how much people love Ringo in the book mm. because Ringo's. I sort of channeled Ringo's voice, and Ringo's the guy that realizes I'm not in charge of the group, and they're not asking my opinion really. So I'll just go. You know, I'll play if they want me to play, and if they don't want me to play, I won't play. Uh, McCartney and Lennon. I tried to follow what I divine to be their respective positions about this and you're right john is john comes across a little more sour on occasion in the book because he was usually not into it and if he did go along with it he would go along often complaining about it and mccartney clearly was the guy that was more pro keeping the beatles together and uh none of that's made up that's sort of the way that it actually was uh between the two of them uh i tried to keep it real between the two of them um i i I didn't mask over the idea that they had a lot of serious issues with each other what i tried to do instead was to say is there a way that you can continue to play with someone who you have serious issues with and i think that history tells us there is a way i mean look the rolling stones are still playing together right Mm. now i mean think about that and this is one thought i love to put out there uh, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles are two groups that were contemporaries of each other, literally contemporaries. And the Rolling Stones have been playing for 50-plus years, and they're playing right now. So uh, the idea that the Beatles might have hung together is not so outrageous after all. Uh, you were mentioning uh, Lennon's UFO sighting uh, yeah. on the Hudson when he lived in the, the village uh, with May Pang. This was before the Dakota. Uh, I guess he had moved out of the Dakota, or he hadn't bought the Dakota yet. I can't remember. Uh, they, at, at the time of his sighting, they... Well, let's... Um, I, I don't want to get this wrong. I don't... I don't think they had it. No, they did. I think they did have the Dakota by that point. But I think, yeah, I think this was a, one of those little uh, periods when he was living but away. But he, he they had were been in yeah. uh, Los Angeles, yes. and he had come back, and Yoko had refused to take him back even then. That's so right. he was still staying with May Pang in, in New York at that time. That's right. And I interviewed May Pang, and we talked about that uh, that that sighting, and, and he it's actually mentioned on his 74 album, Walls and Bridges, that he saw this thing. Uh, that's right, and also in Strange Days. That's right. There's UFOs over New York, and I'm not too surprised. Yes. The other thing that, that uh, May Pang mentioned uh, is that uh, at the time Paul McCartney was going down to, I think it was either Kansas City or New Orleans, to do some recording. Right. And uh, uh, Lennon asked May Pang, uh, should I go down and meet him? And she said, yes. Uh, and, and, and he was ready to pack his bags and go. And this was in mid, the mid-70s, 75, right. maybe, 76. Uh, that could have... That would have been another, I mean, honestly, I, I could have chosen that as the break point. I could have started the book there, that they get back together. Uh, that would have been another way to do it. I mean, I just wanted to bring in those wonderful stories from 68, 69, 70, 71, yeah. that kind of thing. But absolutely, and by the way, the reason that Lennon did not go down to hang out with McCartney is Yoko brought him back into her life. Mm. And so he was literally... I think, about to get on a plane and go down there, and then Yoko said, uh, ollie, ollie, income free, and he decided uh, 
to, he had two great partners in his life, Paul McCartney and Yoko Ono, and he, he went with Yoko. There you go. See, there's the butterfly effect. Maybe, That's you know, right. Yoko didn't reach John in time. He went down, got on that plane, and yep. things could have been different. And that's I mean, why... this is a fascinating game, as oh, you can see, and you is. can play it in any number of ways. I guess the thing that I have learned, having written two of these books and done a television series about it, is there's no perfect place to jump in. Hmm. You just sort of jump in and then commit to it. The, the, the number one thing to make a what-if book work is to commit to your premise yes. and not to waffle on it. So that's kind of what I've tried to do. Oh, and you did it uh, masterfully, I have to tell you. Uh, uh, plans in the works to turn this into a TV series? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I don't control that, of course. I'm not the god of television down here, but there's more television being made uh, now than any time in history. So that is kind of one of, the, as I sort of wrap up, uh, or, or, or ramp up, if you will, the book uh, 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 marketing point of view, uh, it seems to have taken off and, and solidified its position. And now what I want to do is I want to take the success of the Kennedy and the, the uh, Beatles books, and uh, I do have strong plans. They were both written, by the way, to become a season of a television series. So just uh, the premise would be that Breakpoint is the series name, and in the same way that, say, um, American Horror Story has different stories each season, Right. Um, one season could be the Beatles, the next season could be JFK, the next season could be something else, and each season would be uh, roughly ten episodes. So you'll notice in the both the Surrounded by Enemies book about JFK and the Once There Was a Way about the Beatles, each has a chapter structure roughly of 10 chapters, so the idea would be they would be the Bible for the writer's room to convert them into television episodes. Brilliant. Here, just uh, just going to float another idea uh, for for the third installment of Breakpoint. What if I can't the, wait. What if the Leafs won the Stanley Cup? <laughs> Listen, why not? <laughs> I mean, I mean if, if nothing else, you can see how this is the greatest parlor game that you can imagine. It's just fun to sit around and kick through this stuff around. Well, I can't recommend this um, highly enough uh, for Beatle fans and non-Beatle fans alike. Once there was a way, give us the websites again for all those okay. wonderful Easter eggs. Uh, three uh, websites. The main one is whatifbeatles.com. Uh, you can get it cheapest at Amazon currently online, amazonbeatles.com. And if you want to see the music video that we've been talking about, it's at morebeatles.com Bryce, a real pleasure. Thank you so much for hanging it's out. It's been my pleasure, Richard, and, and thank you, and, and thanks to all your fans. Thank you. Bryce Sable, Once There Was a Way. L.A. Marzulli standing by the Paracas Peruvian Skulls. Are they part alien? Well, we might just find out. Stay tuned. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station here in Toronto, Zoomer Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM. Hello to all of you listening down the line on one of our affiliate stations across North America, the podcast, uh, The Conspiracy Show, and Zoomer Radio apps. Uh, Those of you watching the live stream on YouTube and those of you hanging out in the live YouTube chat. 
Uh, however and wherever you're listening or watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, just a reminder, if you haven't already done so, check out the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, and uh, hit that sub button. We're just shy of, I think, 7,000 subs. Uh, my new podcast, of course, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Conspiracy Unlimited. And uh, please say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Uh, Paracas, uh, if you haven't uh, found it on a map, it's a, it's a desert uh, peninsula located within uh, Pisco province on the south coast of Peru. That's where you'll find Paracas. And it is here where a Peruvian archaeologist, Julio Tello, uh, made an amazing discovery uh, back in 1928, a massive and elaborate graveyard containing tombs filled with the remains of individuals with large elongated skulls, the largest elongated skulls found anywhere in the world. And these have become known as the Paracas skulls. In total, more than 300 of these skulls were found, some of which date back 3,000 years. And uh, they created uh, considerable waves uh, several years ago, 2014, I think, when a, a geneticist undertook preliminary DNA tests and um, I believe the reports were kind of murky or unknown. Uh, this this um, geneticist found uh, the uh, mitochondrial DNA had mutations unknown in any human primate or animal known so far. A second round of DNA tests have now been carried out. Some saying the results are just as controversial, leading to further speculation the skull's former owners may not have been from this planet. Now, on Friday, uh, Nephilim researcher L.A. Marzuli held a live global symposium on Los Angeles in which he had a team of um, researchers uh, to talk about this DNA test. And he's here to talk about it now. L.A. is an author, lecturer, filmmaker. He's penned 10 books, including the Nephilim Trilogy, which made the CBA bestsellers list. He received an honorary doctorate for these series for, from his uh, mentor, uh, Dr. I.D.E. Thomas. And um, he has also uh, been honored with the Gold Medallion Award from Chuck Misler at the uh, K-House Conference in 2014. His series, On the Trail of the Nephilim, and... Uh, part two are uh, full-color oversized books which uncover startling evidence that there has been a massive cover-up of what he believes are the remains of the Nephilim, the giants mentioned in the Bible. And a great pleasure to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, L.A. Marzuli. L.A., how are you? Richard, I'm doing really well. Is there any possibility of, of getting your volume up? I got my cell phone turned up all the way. I can barely hear what you're saying. I've got it on speaker and I've got the speaker jammed in my ear so it's it's uh, very difficult but I'm, I'm doing really well sort of recovering uh from the conference um it was just great to see everybody bring bring the so-called uh you know bring our team together uh, a lot of the members had not seen each other for instance rick, rick woodward had never met who was a, our, one of our anthropologists had never met mambo gonzalez the archaeologist so it was, it was just really great to have everybody talk we did two wonderful sit-down dinners together um, and obviously the conversation was fast and furious. But uh, you know what? The, the bottom, before you get into this too much, you know, the bottom line is um, we, I'm not claiming these are alien skulls or they're from, we don't know what we're looking at yet. And that's, I, I'm always backing off the whole sensationalistic angle. 
Um, you know, let, let's take a scientific approach here, which is what the team has tried to do. Uh, we have no conclusions on anything. All we know is that the, the DNA is pointing to a Middle Eastern and European ancestry for some of, of the skulls that we were able to test, not all, but many of them. But there's also the skulls have certain morphological differences which are not present in Homo sapiens sapiens. So it's, um, you know, we're, we're off to the races here. And the reason why we held the conference was to basically uh, share the data, what we have, and to the people. How long did it take uh, to negotiate to get permission to to take these skulls uh, and subject them to this DNA testing? Because they're in a museum down there in Peru. How long did that take? Well, the actual... Um, we started back in 2013. Um, we went through three archaeologists before we got to Mondo, which is our fourth archaeologist. And all these guys were accredited, and they were bona fide archaeologists, but they, they couldn't move the ball down the field, uh, as it were, with all due respect. And so what Mondo did is he created uh, the paperwork that we needed and outlined what we were trying to do, and he's got a master's degree of archaeology. And um, that it, it took basically um, three years ago until 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 now to we're finished this phase of of um, you know our research. But basically, once Mondo got the paperwork, about two years to actually from start to finish to get to get the um, approval. And then when we went down, we took samples from the ICA ICA the ICA Museum as well as Senior Juan's Paracas History Museum in Paracas, uh, took all those samples and basically flagged and tagged them, tagged and bagged them, and Chase Plotsky, our, our forensic field expert, was responsible for that. And we uh, gave them to Ruben Soto, who was the archaeologist at ICA, and he had to take them and show them to the Minister of Culture, where they examined each of the samples. Now, they didn't take them out of the the sealed and taped vials. They didn't do that. But they looked at them and numbered them. That process took another four to five months, which means that we had to go back and retrieve the samples, which we did. Um, I had letters, formal letters uh, from the... Oh, we, we, you dropped out a little bit there. I'm sorry, L.A., you dropped out a little bit there. You, you had a formal letter of permission from whom? The Minister of Culture. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've got I've got five bars here, so I'm slamming on my end. I can barely hear you. I don't know what else you what else we can. Well, no, you're, for the most part, it sounds pretty good. We just had a little okay. drop out there. Now, uh, let me uh, let me ask you: Is there anyone out there? And I'm sure there are the cynics. Uh, you can find them on Snopes.com who are still clinging to this idea that these elongated skulls are cranial abnormalities or that they are, well, they are cranial abnormalities in, in terms of humans, but that they have been, they are the product of a process of binding the skull from infancy. Is there anyone who, who still gives that any credence? Oh, yeah. A mainstream archaeologist. That's the, and I had an email from some woman uh, who's never examined our data, never examined the evidence, and all she's doing is regurgitating the party line that all these skulls were cradle-headboarded, which is what Mondo Gonzalez is our archaeologist. Um, Rick Woodward is our anthropologist. Dr. Alde is a medical doctor. And Dr. Uh, Dr. Malcolm Warren is a chiropractor. You put all these guys together, 
um, and we start we start examining the skulls. Um, you know, an archaeologist is not looking at the these skulls, let's say, the same way. That um, are you still there? Yes, I am. I'm hearing you. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. That the way, let's say, a medical doctor would, and that was, or even an anthropologist. It was Rick Woodward's work. I mean, he he reached out to me in an email a while back, a couple of years ago, and said, "L.A. There are morphological differences in these skulls. There's no way that, that, that and no way that it resulted from cranial deformation, cranial headboarding. And what we have here is we have a, a, a what's called a brain hole in, in layman's terms." Uh, in scientific terms, it's called the foramen magnum. It's where the skeletal structure attaches to the base of the skull. You, there, there's no place to bind the skull and move the rear plate, the occipital plate, forward, you know, towards the, the foramen magnum. Right. In many of the, of the Paraka skulls, and this is really one of the major smoking guns, the structural morphological differences of the Paraka skulls, including the foramen condyles, which are completely different than human beings. The, the, the hole is smaller. It's shaped differently. The condyles are way more robust. They're shaped differently. And some of the skulls, the pyramidal valets, are completely absent. I mean, we are looking at what we believe are genetic anomalies in these skulls. And, you know, when we got into this, um, we obviously realized that, yes, yeah, some of the skulls were, were cradle headboard. We're not disputing that. You know, cranial deformation was practiced, and some tribes it still is practiced in, in certain parts of the world. So we're not disputing that. We're saying that the early Paracas from 3,500 years ago have morphological differences and genetic differences, which rewrite history as far as we know. More testing needs to be done. That's why we're on the trail. Uh, we are desperately looking for a – we work with several labs. lab is the Paleo DNA Lab. Um, in Canada, and they are very transparent. Um, I met Stephen and Renee Frappietro. It's a husband and wife team up there. They've done a lot of our sequencing. Um, we've also done sequencing in other other labs at different places. And but the Paleo DNA in, in Canada is the one that will let us use their name. But that's that's a geneticist. Let's say both of them are geneticists. We're looking for a geneticist on our team. That, that's what we're looking for. So if any of you are out there listening to the show that are real geneticists, please email me at la at lamarzuli.net. We have information uh, sequencing from um, next generation sequencing, which was done at a very prestigious university. It's The data is voluminous, but we have no one to read it and interpret it. How? So we can, how difficult? Well, the music is coming up here, L.A. We're going to break away. But um, okay. uh, when, we, when we come back, I want to find out a little bit about mitochondrial DNA. Uh, imagine extracting that from a, a skull that's 3,000, 3,500 years old, uh, and um, th- that DNA is still intact to some extent. And then we'll maybe talk about uh, the, the prospect of identifying the, the nuclear DNA. We'll do all of that when we come back. L.A. Marzuli is with us. We're talking about the Paracas skulls, these elongated skulls in Peru. Back with more in a moment. My name is Richard Serrett. This is The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett.
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. L.A. Marzulli is with us. We're talking about the elongated skulls. And on Friday, uh, he live-streamed a, um, a symposium, and most of the team members uh, were there. Dr. Malcolm Warren, the chiropractor, Rick Woodward, the anthropologist. Uh, L.A., of course, Mondo Gonzalez, the uh, the archaeologist. Dr. Michael Alde, the medical doctor. Um, the forensic expert, Chase, is it Klotsky or Klitsky? Uh, yeah, Chase Klotsky. Yeah. Klotsky. What was her role? Well, Chase is a, is a forensic field expert. Um, what she did is she brought um, and collected the samples and tagged and bagged everything. I mean, she set up a sterile environment at ECA. Um, th- there was none. They took us into a room. It certainly wasn't sterile. And who knows, you know, DNA floating all over. Sterilized the table, took out these very large sheets of sterilized paper, put those down. So we created an environment uh, where we could take samples. Uh, we also took my DNA, Mondo's DNA, and Richard Shaw's DNA. Richard's a filmmaker and a good friend and the co-producer of the Watchers series. So Richard videoed everything and, and created this wonderful little uh, composite video, which we showed at, at the conference on Friday. By the way, the live streaming had a major glitch. Um, they had audio problems. And we are, I've been in contact with uh, the man who is, is getting it up on the net um, where it's, it's not all go yet, but he's now uploading uh, parts of the conference. So we're hoping by tomorrow early um, he'll have the whole thing up, but we don't know yet. So it's still, too, you know, the people who have signed up, and there are many people that have signed up and many people that are continuing to sign up, be patient. Um, probably by tomorrow sometime, uh, it'll, everything will be up and running and you'll be able to watch the proceedings. But Chase um, was instrumental, sterile as possible. And then the chain of evidence, tagging and bagging the samples that are coming out so nothing is confused. We took pictures of every artifact that we took samples from. And all this, of course, was legal because it took us, you know, like I said, couple of years to get the, uh, uh, the permits that we require for the Ministry of Culture. We have sent down the DNA results to the Ministry of Culture, and we're hoping that they'll allow us to go into phase two, which is a proper archaeological dig. All right. So the mitochondrial DNA, that comes from the mother's side, correct? Correct. So let's be clear. Uh, it, the mitochondrial DNA... Uh, identified these skulls as belonging to what, Heplo Group what? Well, it varies. Um, what modern-day archaeologists, mainstream archaeologists, uh, will tell you that um, what they're looking for, what, what would be big industry, is Haplo Group B. And Haplo Group B uh, is basically an Asian origin. In other words, the theory is, it's called the Beringian Land Bridge theory. Right. That at the end of the last ice age, uh, people migrated from Asia into the New World across what is now the Bering Strait, which is a waterway. But then it was the Bering Land Bridge, and these people came down into the Americas and, and fanned out, and, and that became the uh, Amerindians that we see. We're saying, yeah, we get that. We're not disputing that. But we're also saying that 
that people travel and people explore. Um, I am a I am a diffusionist, and in, in archaeological circles, there are two two types of belief. Uh, the prevailing paradigm is isolationist, that people don't travel, that they stay in one place, and and culture moves very slowly. Diffusionists say no. People travel, people explore, people jump on ships, hike over to the next mountain, whatever, uh, to see what's on the other side. And and I showed a clip of Thor Heyerdahl, uh, who in um, the decades ago, I think it was like 1975, he built a replica of a reed boat, and he called it Ra 2. And, and he sailed basically from Safi, which is, you know, near Morocco, um, out the Mediterranean and, uh, and through the Atlantic and wound up like days later in the island of Barbados without a compass, without anything, without a map. Now, you know, he had a, he had a life support team, another boat that was, that was pacing them, okay? But, they were, you know, they weren't going, well, where's land? They were just, they were allowing the trade winds to blow them. His hypothesis was that people came from Europe and, and, the Middle East, you know, thousands of years ago, right. and may have reached the New World. Well, he proved it with Ra. Right. He reached the island of Barbados, and that's in the New World. So these elongated skulls, the mitochondrial DNA, points to their origin being in, you mentioned the Caucasus Mountains, and the extreme Eastern Europe, correct? Did you, did you uh, copy that, L.A.? The mitochondrial DNA points to their origin as being Eastern Europe, correct? Yeah, it, it, it's both. It's the Middle East, Eastern Europe, um, different haplogroups in different places. And that's what's, just, that's what's fascinating. As I said, and I've, I've stated this in, in numerous interviews, I mean, this, for at least if the, the, the data that we have right now rewrites history. I mean, that's all there is to it, if, if people are fair and honest. Now, we've... We've done 58 samples, 58 samples, and, and the blowback is always, well, it's contamination. And, and our counter-argument to that is, how do you know it's contamination? It's a strong-man argument. Right. You say, as the results don't fit your paradigm. So how many results do we need before at least we can agree that maybe we should take a second look at this? And if it was just the DNA, that would be one thing. The morphological differences... Richard, with these skulls, put it in a whole different category. Um, we may be looking at a subspecies of human beings. We don't know, right? And we're, and we're not we're not drawing any conclusions. I mean, we are we are applying the scientific method as best as we possibly can with with rigorous controls, and I really mean that. Uh, it's all in the press conference, which is about I don't know about three and a half four hours of video, um, and and you know the link is there, and people will be able to go and see it for themselves. Because everyone, Brian Forrester presented, Richard Shaw presented, Chase Kowalski. Um, of course, I was the, the, the sort of the MC, and I also presented and outlined their hypotheses. But when it, where the, the, the really the, the goods begin to happen with Mondo Gonzalez, the DNA, that's the first punch. The second punch is Rick Woodward coming on the record and, and, and informing us that, look, there are morphological differences in the Paraka skulls which are not, um, let's say, akin to a normal human being. Right. Something, no doubt about it. So, setting aside the whole Nephilim question, 
again, this is history in the making, history changing, because if the mitochondrial DNA points to the Middle East and the Caucasus Mountains and Eastern Europe, there weren't supposed to be Eastern Europeans uh, in South America 3,500 years ago. So that exactly. turns the narrative on its head. Uh, yeah, it stands the narrative on its head. It rewrites history. And, you know, right now the academics have not gotten hold of, of any of our information um, because it's not available yet. It will be, like I, I keep reiterating this, but more than like sometime, uh, the entire conference will be up and people will be able to watch it for those that have the embed code uh, that got paid for it. In the meantime, um, we are making DVDs, which we'll be selling. Uh, there's a book, it's a compilation book by all eight of us wrote a chapter in the book. It's about 150 pages, four-color book, lots of great photos. And I, I would say that that's a must because everybody weighs in, um, and it's different. You know, when people write, it's different than speaking. So we'll be selling that, uh, and, and, and a, lot of the, a lot of the funds, all the, all the funding for the live streaming goes back into our DNA fund. So it, it costs right now upwards of $135,000, $140,000, somewhere. I haven't, I haven't done the total math yet to get to this point. And we had a wonderful benefactor. We just call them the G's because they want to, re- want to remain anonymous. But without their generosity and their belief in the project, we never would have gotten this far. Um, it's expensive to put people in the field, to feed them, to give them airfare, put them in a hotel. Um, and then, of course, the lab is expensive. So, you know, all this, it adds up. Absolutely. Adds up. And like I said, we've been through thousands of dollars to get to this point. So... Is at some point, would you be able uh, to extract nuclear DNA and find out the other half of the equation? So, if the if the from the maternal line, it's coming from humans in Eastern Europe. In Eastern Europe, will the nuclear DNA allow you to determine the other half of the equation? Yes, and that's that's what we find. That's the goal. Um, until we get nuclear DNA. We have no idea who these people really were. If we get nuclear DNA, here's the hypothetical. Let's say it comes back unknown primate. Now what? Right. So now what do we do with unknown primate? And that, that basically, we're off to the races. So, you know, more testing needs to be done. That's why we're on the trail. That's why we're, we're, we're pressing uh, to get the archaeological dig, the formal archaeological dig, um, in in the in the Chongos necropolis, um, a lot more a lot more testing needs to be done. But we revealed the evidence, we revealed the the data on Friday at the press conference because we reached a point where we need further funding. Number one, but number two, we want other people to check what we're doing, and if we're wrong, then tell us we're wrong. But if we're right, if we're right, then, you know, people in, a, in the scientific and academic community need to start taking a hard look at this. Uh, ba- uh, because, yeah. good. Based on the skulls, and I don't know, uh, in addition to the skulls, when the, the tomb was located back in 1928, whether there were other bones found. But can, we, can you draw us a picture of what these, let's call them humanoids, what they may have looked like, how tall they might have been? 
Well, they're not giants. That's the first thing. And I'm going to have, obviously we're on the record here, but personal belief, which I have to be very careful that it doesn't, um, let's say, color the investigation in any way. So when I presented this, I just presented our hypotheses, which was right. this, that 3,500 years ago, um, when Joshua and Caleb prosecuted the war in what's known as the Promised Land, there were these these enigmatic tribes that were living there, the Rephaim, uh, the Anakim, um, the, the Zanzumi, the Emims. And all these, these names, when translated, for instance, the Anakim means the long necks. It doesn't necessarily denote giants, but we don't know. Um, so it seems like perhaps, and this is conjecture, that these tribes that were there um, may have had different genetic characteristics which were reflected in their name, the Anakim, the long necks. The Paraka skulls, because of the position of the foramen magnum, we feel that it, they may have had longer necks. And Josie? Well, we're getting a bit of a drop there. Okay, so they may have had longer necks, and then after that, if you could pick the up on that. Of these giants right. were uh, openly on display at the time of his writing, which is about 2,000 years ago. And, and he said they had countenances that were so different from mortal men. So they looked really different. And so you've got the, the biblical narrative, you've got Josephus, the Jewish historian, and you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, all validating that these tribes were there. So my personal theory is that what we may be looking at is one of the tribes gone years ago. There is other evidence that points to that, because the Paracas people wind up on the shores of Paracas, Peru, about 3,500 years ago, roughly. It fits the timeline. They're not like 10,000 years old when they arrived there. It's about 34, 35, 3,300 years ago. That fits the timeline. So it's, it's extremely interesting. And again, what, what, our, what we've done so far is we have more questions than answers at this point. But we are greatly intrigued by what we are saying. Uh, so, again, just because there was a few drops there, let me just summarize. Uh, so, 3,500 years ago, we're talking Old Testament, the, um, the, uh, these various tribes, who may or may not have been giants, but had certain genetic differences, obviously, were, were driven out of the Promised Land, and then all of a sudden we have uh, these um, humanoids arriving in South America and Central America with these elongated uh, skulls, which are not the result of, of um, uh, cradle boarding. Uh, so then the question becomes, okay, so are they, in fact, um, are they, in fact, these, these tribes that were driven out of the Promised Land? Uh, now, they had red hair. Uh, some of the pictures I've seen, we, we, we see these wisps of red hair uh, is is that significant? Well, yes, it is, because uh, um, Amerindians do not have red hair. The baby skull, which we unwrapped, which is 1,935 years, um, had strawberry blondish hair. Um, and when we had the hair tested, 
the, the guy the guy that was testing it just said, well, it's definitely not African, but I'm not sure what I'm looking at. And uh, it, it, it seems to be very fine. So, look, we, we've, been, we've been on the trail looking at all this, and it starts to add up. In Paracas, there are date palms. Date palm trees grow in the Middle East. They don't grow in Paracas. They're not indigenous to the area. What are all these date palms doing there? And no one has an answer for it. Um, uh, Brian Forrester has discovered that, that much of the uh, Paracas pottery is very fine, very thin. The walls of the vessels are very thin, which seems to point to the use of a wheel. We know that the wheel was, was you know, it did not exist in, in pre-Columbian uh, Peru. It came over with the conquistadors. So, again, um, the Paracas are depicted wearing turbans. Uh, most people in Peru don't wear turbans, but people in the Middle East do. So it's very, very interesting, extremely intriguing. Uh, are these the remnants of the Nepaline? But we have no idea. All right, uh, L.A., I've got to jump in here. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss the elongated skulls. And we'll also uh, give you some links for when that uh, symposium is back online and available for uh, purchase. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and L.A. Marzulli right after this. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just a programming note. Next week on the show, we'll talk about divine water uh, and then in the uh, second half, Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us. Uh, her new book is The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness. That's uh, next week. Right now, L.A. Marzulli uh, stays with us. And uh, we are talking about uh, latest, the latest DNA testing performed on these uh, Paracas skulls in Peru, these elongated skulls. The mitochondrial DNA uh, suggests um, a, a haplogroup from Eastern Europe, the Middle East, the Caucasus Mountains. Now, these skulls, keep in mind, are 3,500 years old. What are Eastern Europeans doing in South America 3,500 years ago? It doesn't fit the official archaeological or anthropological narrative. Uh, now, the, there were mutations uh, found in the DNA, I, I think, in the original uh, test back in 2014. Uh, did that definitively rule out that this group could 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 or could not breed with with humans do we know let me let me me set the record straight as best as i possibly can first of all we've never been able to we've only done carbon dating on on two artifacts one was 1935 years which is pretty much the end of the paracas the other one was about 800 years old so we haven't we haven't tested anything at that's thirty five hundred years old, or let's say just three thousand years old. Okay. Uh, the closest we've gone is two thousand. Second of all, we threw out the initial findings by that so called geneticist. We don't reference that at all. That was in twenty fourteen. That was uh, that was not our work. That was someone else's. That was um, you know it was an email which never should have gone out. 
Never should have been posted, but it was. And that, in my opinion, was just horrible. That's why, that's why we, we, we did it the right way. You know, we, we um, took the time to get a team together of people that are skilled in the field, like Mondo Gonzalez, who wrote, wrote the paperwork that we needed to do. We got the proper permits from the Minister of Culture. Went down and, and tagged and bagged everything with a team of professionals. I mean, the, the process was, was um, I believe, stellar. I defy anybody to do it better than what we did, and I really mean that. Uh, without, unless they have a portable safe room, you know, where the room is a clean room, either completely clean, and you know, with an air duct and everything else, which didn't exist at the Inca Museum. So Chase did a wonderful job of, of creating a sterile environment for us. We wore suits, disposable suits, which we changed after every skull. So we had nine skulls to sample out of the nine we did eight, because uh, one of them we just immediately looked at as, as human. But the other ones that we did, we would wear, um, we, we would head to toe, full body suits, hair mask, you know, goggles, glasses, um, face masks, uh, so we're not breathing on the thing, double sleeves, double gloves, boots. And then once we were finished that, we would go out of the room, outside, strip down, get out of the suits, move those to the side. We had compressed air. And we would blow each other off with compressed air, don new suits, and go back in. And we were, we were told by um, other geneticists to examine the protocols that what we did was, was really good. I mean, we really went overboard. Right. So the idea of contamination just wouldn't immediately be, be stated. So it's, 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 it's their fallback position. Oh, it's contaminated. Okay, so then what about the genetic anomalies? of the skulls, because that's genetic, in our opinion. In Dr. Alday's opinion, in Malcolm Warren, this is not the result of cradle headboarding. It's something else. Right. So it, it's, it's very complex, very complex. If, and the data, yeah. look, the data is the data. The data is the data. People are going to want to start having an attack, which is what they always do. And at, at the conference, you know, I wasn't mentioning... Uh, the Bible per se, or the, I never talked about the Nephilim. Those are those are my personal beliefs. But that that's that's off the table. We're not talking at the data. We're looking at this strictly through a scientific lens. What does the data say? What does it point to? What does it tell us? And the story, which is why there are no conclusions. If the uh, nuclear DNA testing comes back undetermined. What do you do with that? Well, let's say it comes back undetermined or unknown primate. Um, then what you would do is you would pay to, to sequence, to try to sequence the genome. In other words, and that, that's a lot of money. When you actually um, start, start sequencing everything out, you, you map out and see where it's different, you know, which, which particular portions of the sequencing is different than a normal human being. You know, in other words, what, what you'll look at is, oh, is it, it kind of looks like chimpanzee. Does it look like an ape? Is it completely unknown? Is there nothing in the gen bank which matches? Well, are there certain similarities in certain parts? 
And that's why you need a geneticist. Um, that, that's way be, I mean, I'm not, obviously, I'm not trained. I'm a researcher. I write books, I make movies, and I, and I lecture on different subjects. But a geneticist is trained in this. And like Stephen Frappietro up at the Paleo DNA Lab is not, he's a geneticist, but he's not trained on the next generation sequencing, which gives you the type of voluminous data that takes a computer sometimes a day or two to crunch, just to crunch the data and, and upload it from, from the, the site where, where the data sits into that computer, which is a very, I've seen the program, it's incredibly sophisticated. And that's where you can look at, even with the mitochondrial DNA, you can look at, oh my gosh, there's, there's, there's sequencing here, which is completely different than which, what should be there. All right, L.A., i got to jump in here. We'll take another time out, we'll con- and then we'll continue to the top of the hour. And um, we'll continue to delve into these elongated skulls, the Paracas skulls, the DNA testing, completed at least at this stage, the mitochondrial DNA indicating an origin in Eastern Europe. And yet they were found in Peru, and these things are, well, at least between 800 and 2,000 years old. Doesn't fit the narrative. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. L.A. Marzulli uh, is with us talking about the elongated skulls. Uh, L.A., give us the, the, um, the links of the websites uh, for where, in a few days, hopefully people can see this um, symposium online. Well, right, you know, we've had... Like I said at the, at the top of the show, we had enormous problems with the live streaming. Um, I've never seen anything like it. The, the tech guy was pulling his hair out. He'd never seen anything like it. Um, but it's, so there was no live streaming on Friday. People have been incredibly patient and, and understanding. And it's now Sunday, and we're starting to put things up on, on the link. It will probably still not grow. But if you're interested, you can go to lamarzulli.net, lamarzulli.net, and, you know, pay the $10. And um, once it becomes available, you'll be able to watch the whole thing. Um, I'm going to leave it up there for at least two to three weeks so uh, the folks have plenty of time to watch it. Um, I think when people see the presentations uh, in in Toto and, and you watch the progression of speakers, I think people will realize that, there's really something going on here. I mean, there's no, and I really didn't mean this, Richard, there's no hyperbole here. There's nothing like that. There's, here's the data. This is what the data is saying. That's it. That's all we're doing. And you can't argue with the data. You can say it's contaminated, but that's a straw man argument. And that's why we bring in the morphological differences, the structural differences, the place of the foramen magnum, the fact that the foramen magnum is in a completely different place, totally different size, the foramen condales, uh, a, a, a condyle, right? Rather, look completely different than a normal human being. The foraminal valleys are, in some cases, are not there. They're not there, and that's huge because those those two holes are where nerve endings and blood vessels go up, which work the face facial muscles. 
so again, it's it's um, something's going on here, and that's why we that's why we had the press conference. It's time to get the data out and have other people look at it. Would you expect then, assuming this is a viable population, that they were a viable population? We we should expect right. then to find more elongated skulls. Again, not cradle headboarding skulls, but the same type elsewhere around the world and dating, let's say, throughout different periods of history, maybe even more more, uh, more recent? Well, we do. And, and that's, that's what's so interesting about it. There are elongated skulls. Now, I'll, I'll jump over to my neck of the woods here outside of Los Angeles. There's a little island called Catalina. And there was a, a primitive archaeologist, I use the term extremely loosely, by the name of Rob Glidden, and he and he did he was hired by the Hay Museum, later gobbled up by the Smithsonian, 1821, and he conducted very primitive archaeological digs um, on the Catalina Island and other in the Channel Island chain, stretches from Santa Barbara down to San Diego. Well, he had this cache of records that were missing for decades, and a, another researcher informed me that the cache of records had been found. So I went out to Catalina. I was able to, to make a donation to the museum there, which allowed me to go out and look at the records, and I did so. And they were pictures from 1919, 1921, black and white photos, five by seven. And within an hour or two, I found a, a collection of photos. This is what I found. I found elongated skulls, six fingers, six fingers. I found a skeleton in situ with Ralph Glidden standing over it, holding a shovel. And we had that photograph analyzed by three separate researchers who put the skeleton at nine feet. Now, I published that. I was on the History Channel and talked about that. I published it in my book, On the Trail of the Nephilim, Volume 2. Richard Shaw, the director of Watchers, we, we went out to look at the museum because we wanted to do like a follow-up piece. We walked into the museum, and there, in the Ralph Glidden section of the museum, was my picture that I had discovered and, you know, and, and had analyzed. It was blown up from 5 by 7 to, like, maybe 18 by a foot high, except the giant was no longer in the picture. They cropped the giant skeleton out of the picture. And that's how the game is played. That's how the game is played. So we took pictures of that, and that went viral. And I wrote, I wrote pieces on it. But Chief Joseph Riverwind, who's part of a team, went to the island several months ago, and he told me that they've now reversed the picture again, and the original picture is up on the wall. Uh, I, I'm going to go out and see it for myself at the end of this month sometime. So, so the original picture with this pioneering archaeologist with a shovel in hand and the, uh, and the, the giant. They hold tenaciously to it. Hmm. Uh, let's set aside the, um, the DNA testing for a moment, because I know you don't want to link that DNA work with your sort of your Nephilim work here. Um, but, so let's separate that. But let's talk about uh, any possible connections between these elongated skulls and... Some other things in, in uh, the Paracas region of Peru that are out of place, maybe structures, that sort of thing. 
Well, not necessarily in Paracas per se, but in other areas of Peru, especially when you think of Oyotintambo, when you think of Cusco, um, there are megalithic structures. And Machu Picchu, been to all those places. And in fact, we're doing a tour in July, which we haven't advertised yet, but we will soon. And what's amazing about this, Richard, again, the standard archaeological spiel is that the Inca built everything. And, you know, I just, once again, I just say, well, show me. How did the Inca take andesite stone, which is very hard on a most hardness scale, and they have copper chisels, and how did, they, how did they carve the stone? How did they transport the stone? How did they make polygonal shapes? And there's really no answers to this. And, and so the straw man argument is, well, it's here, so they must have done it. Well, that's, you know, says who? I mean, obviously there are two cultures. There's a culture here that created these, these incredible, um, this incredible stonework, which predates the Inca. Um, and then we have the Inca coming in, and using indigenous rocks and sort of filling in the gaps or the holes between these incredibly megalithic stones. And these megalithic stones, you know, some of them weigh upwards well over 100 tons. How do you move them? I mean, even in modernity, you, you can do it, but that's a lot of weight. And, and the quarry is 40 miles away, and there are no beasts of burdens in Peru. They're not there. So you've got more problems. And, of course, you know, these archaeologists make these statements, but they never back it up. Well, show me. Show me how you carve andesite stone with a copper chisel in the Bronze Age. Show me. Just show me how you do it. Show me how you transport it. Show me how you create polygonal shapes. And the shape, Richard, the shape of the stone, the cuts go all the way back. They're not just surface cuts for dressing. That, when, you, when you see a line in the stone and another angle coming off of that, that angle goes clear through the stone, and the next stone fits it perfectly, absolutely perfectly. And, I mean, explain how you can do that. And there's no explanation for it. I mean, I've, sh I've shown it to stone nations, to archaeologists, and they laugh nervously, and rightfully so. They because laugh nervously. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, just got a couple minutes left here, but I wanted to ask you, I'm thinking it might be related. And you mentioned bronze before, and we had the Bronze Age in Europe. There's not enough copper right. in Europe to explain the Bronze Age. There is a lot of copper, you know, north of, uh, or on the shores of, of Lake Superior. And there seems to be evidence that there was a major copper mining operation there yeah. Uh, yeah. about, what, 3,500 years ago. Yeah, there, there's tons of copper that go missing. And this is my alternative archaeologist, such as myself. I'm not an archaeologist, but I have an alternative opinion out of all this. I mean, when you go to places like Cahokia, the mound builders, you go to the Great Lakes and you read about the copper, uh, tons of it just missing. How does that work? When our, our discovery of the Nephilim, what we call the Nephilim lands, which was found up near up in Michigan, at an abandoned campsite. There's no, we have no idea where it came. It wasn't in situ, but we've tested this thing. There are isotopes that come from England and Turkey. So what are we looking at here? What's that thing doing there, right? Mm. And it's a bronze artifact. It's a bronze artifact, and it's a lance. It's not a sword. And it doesn't look like anything 
that I've ever seen before, and we've shown it to some uh, archaeologists, and they're mystified. They're not, well, obviously it's a lance, but this goes back to the oral tradition of Native American First Nation people, which state that these giants would come in with these lances, they would skewer the braves and hold them up. They could put three braves on one of these lances, and there's a shot with the owner of the lance, Chief Joseph and myself, standing side in front of us, and guess what? So, you know, it's just, there's a hidden history, as Scotty Walter would say. There's a hidden history which lies just under the surface, and this stuff is everywhere. And uh, that's why we're on the trail, Richard. That's why further research is needed, and if, if your people are interested, um, we should have everything up, hopefully tomorrow. The live streaming, if you're interested, lamarzuli.net, lamarzuli.net. The proceeds from this go right back into the DNA fund. So there you go. L.A. Marzulli, and Marzulli is M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I. That's correct. net. Thanks for this. I appreciate it, L.A. Talk soon and good luck. All right, Richard. Take care. Congrats on the show. Thank you. My thanks to uh, Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, Ryan White. Next week, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness, and Divine Water should be a good one. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known, which you hear in the dark. Speak in the light, what I say in a whisper proclaimed from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.